0: or this weekend, and, and I'm just really grateful for that. Um, David and Jill, it, it's, it's been fun to be able to, well, this is the second time I think I've, I've been asked to teach your folks. Last time it was at a different school, though. I'm a little confused, and, and now you're at this school, and last time it looked a little different, but I, I cannot believe this facility. I cannot believe that you guys get to come in here and have all these rooms. This is, uh, okay, the, I, I know God is um, not working because of rooms. But it is kind of neat to be able to see how God has provided for you folks in this way. I love Dave and Jill, and, and one of the neat things is, is yeah, I was Dave's youth pastor, and we both come from the same home church, and we have a lot of the same foundational truths that we learned very, very young. But what was even more unique is that just a few years after I got at Emmanuel, God called me to a Converge, or Baptist General Conference back then, church, and, and it was called Moraine Valley and there at moraine valley i met the cowenhovens which that's jill's maiden name so david was this unbelievable cooperative young man <laughs> most of the time and then there was jill holy cats she's a blessing she's a life wire but she's a blessing and God brought these two together and did some um, amazing things. And, and I'm just grateful to watch from afar, you know, this church and, and what's going on at this church. One of the neat things really is, is I um, hear David speak. David, if, if I had any choice of anyone to pick for any of my retreats or camps or anything, it would be David Batacola. I love Dave. You guys have been blessed, and um, he loves you. He loves God's word. Uh, he faithfully teaches God's word. There's a lot of pastors out there, and I'm so grateful again uh, to watch Dave, to listen to Dave, to get him on YouTube. He's an international rock star now. Um, it, it, it just is, is amazing. I do question some of his theology. No, I'm just kidding, David. You're right on. No no problem. You know, I personally just started at a Converge church back in Ingleside, Illinois, about four months ago. I'm 62 years old. Now, to some of you, that may not seem very mature, you know? But the truth is, is that there's not a whole lot of churches in Chicagoland or really anywhere that's going to take a gamble on a 62-year-old guy to start leading their church. All right, but they did. And I am so excited for the journey. I I love our people back at Crosspoint. Um, And Sharon and I have another opportunity to be able to shepherd a flock. So I come to you again um, just excited about who God is, recognizing he's got a new ministry for Sharon and myself, Um, where we might be able to encourage people every Sunday, just like you folks. um, We gather to worship, to sing, to pray, to serve, to give, and to open His Word. We're teaching families to be able to know and obey Christ. You know, Jesus came about 2,000 years ago. And to be quite honest, He came in a most unusual way. After a little bit of learning from the scriptures himself, watching his parents model what it means to love God, entering the trades for a little bit, at about 30 years old, he began to gather some men and begin to disciple them, work with them, shepherd them. And he began to teach. The Jews at that time didn't expect their king to look like or to act like or to talk like Jesus. But when he started to proclaim the message, when he started to let others know that he was the king, his message really was quite simple. The kingdom's here now. We have ushered into the, we have ushered, Jesus ushered us into the kingdom. And his message was, you don't have to live under the reign and the rule of sin anymore. Now you came for a political savior and you want a political savior and Rome is so oppressive but I'm a king of a different sort. I'm a king that changes you from the inside. I'm a king that teaches how to to live abundantly in spite of the pressures and the scenarios and the situations of life. He said, in fact, I'm a king. You're not even going to believe this but I came to die. I came to serve. I came to wash people's feet. This king was so different than the king that the Jews had hoped to come. Well, one of the guys that he hung out with was Peter. Peter was a Galilean fisherman who lived in Capernaum. Andrew was Peter's brother, and Andrew met Jesus first. And he knew there was something special about Jesus. And he went back and literally told Peter, hey, I I think I found the Messiah. You got to come and meet this guy. From then on, Peter was a different person. I mean, don't you love Peter? He's the guy that learns the hard way, right? He's the guy that always talks before he thinks. He's the guy that you go, I can relate with. You know, he didn't really get all that Jesus was teaching, until literally Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected, and the Holy Spirit empowered him. But after this time, Peter became a bold leader. He was a healer. He was a preacher. Thousands of people were coming to faith as a result of of this fisherman. An uneducated fisherman who spent three years with Jesus. Peter saw Jesus do things we would have loved to see Jesus do. He hung out with Jesus in in some of the most important ministry opportunities that Jesus had. But then Jesus left, he went back to be with his father. And he left the Holy Spirit to indwell not only Peter, but every believer. And life was different for Peter. After about 30 years of pastoring, Peter writes his first letter. And it was 1 Peter. He's living at Rome at about 62 AD, which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to most of you. But if you know anything about history, about 64 A.D. is when Nero went berserk. Literally, it was hard to be a Christian in 62. But in 64, Rome burned down. And Nero used that opportunity to be able to blame the believers. And so from that time on, the persecution heated up. And it was an ugly situation. Peter shares with a group of kingdom patriots how to live as exiles, temporary residents, forgi- uh, foreigners, sojourners, while anticipating the next life. The first century believers were trying to journey well between these two worlds. This world that they were living in, dominated by Rome in an ungodly culture, And the next world, when as soon as they would shut their eyes, eternity would start and they'd get to spend the rest of that time with God. Life was hard for those who claimed Jesus as Lord and was only going to get worse when 1 Peter was written. So in light of their suffering and environment, Peter focuses on an amazing God. In fact, when things get hard... It's a good rule to focus on God. When your boss is coming to you and sharing with you, hey, you know what, you've only got three months left of your job, what are you going to do? When your spouse looks at you and says, you know, I'm a little tired of this relationship, I'm out of here. When your kids seem to go a different way, a way that you had hoped they'd never go. Or maybe the doctor comes in and says, you know, That pain in your side is not good. You've got cancer. Wow. Like you never almost thought it would ever happen to you. But when things get hard, no matter what it is, you go to God. Now, Peter knew that. And Peter didn't have any idea how hard things were going, but they were already hurting. So he began to focus in this letter on his amazing God. He focused on grace and mercy, a salvation that's so rich and so bold and so robust. He focused on their relationship and their position with God he knew that would get them through these difficult times he focused on the journey and said you know what it's going to be short it's going to be challenging and used these terms like exiles and foreigners and sojourners so that they would understand that in light of eternity their life whether it be 50 years or 70 years or 90 years it was so short now let's face it: when you're 18 years old, you never think life is short. You don't. Everything's going well, and all of a sudden you blink, and you're 30. You blink again, and you're 60. Say, "Hey, I can't, I can't afford to blink anymore." You know, I, I'm. This is going way too fast, and you all of a sudden realize that life really is short. You're on a journey, but this isn't what life is about. In our text, I think Peter reminds those hurting saints who they are and what their mission is. In fact, I think the portion we're going to look at today um, is a pep talk maybe because the team is tired and discouraged and overwhelmed and depleted, and some literally are ready to throw the towel in. Now, some of you may not be aware, but I, I think most of you are aware this whole thing called March Madness. Uh, next weekend is going to be a very important weekend right here in Phoenix. See, you live in the right place again, you know? And and really what has happened is you see all these this hype, and all this basketball, and if some of you don't like basketball, this is like torture, you know. But what happens is all these teams, the best teams come along, and, and they all have these different seedings. And, and the seeding one and two and three and four, those are supposed to be your best teams, and they're the ones that are actually supposed to win. But every once in a while, there's this 14th seat, and they win a game. And you're going like, oh, this is Cinderella. This might be cool. And then they win another game, and then they win another game. And I think, really, Peter's talking to the 1,749th seat. And they're playing number one. Those guys can jump better. They can shoot from anywhere. They, they are just knocking the ball out of the park. And, and it's halftime and this team seems to be winning. And Coach Peter is around this team. And he's saying this. He's saying, you know what, guys, it doesn't look good. I, I, I know. They're all two feet taller than we are. They all jump better. They all put the hoop into you know, the ball in the hoop way better than any of us. But I'm going to remind you who you are and who's going to win. And they've already been beat up for a half. They are tired. They are sweated. They are depleted. The score isn't that far off. But there isn't any kind of hope that you're going to have. This is Peter. This is Peter saying, you look around, and things don't look promising. The culture's hard. They don't care a whole lot about God. You've been drilled since you've been a little kid that really you get success from power and money and relationships. And those are the things that fulfill you. And Peter goes, no, 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 no. You know what? I lived three years with the king. I learned what was important. I've been a pastor for 30 years. And little did he know, Peter probably only lived maybe just a little bit after, after Nero's terror. No one knows for sure, but traditionally, he was supposed to have been crucified upside down in the, in the um, probably 65, 66 A.D. time frame. So Peter was warning. Peter knew this was coming. Peter knew the pressure was coming. But he goes, what am I going to tell this group of people. Basically, he said, if you understand who you are, your mission is going to be clear. So today, let's hear what the coach has to say. If you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9. If you have a flat screen, you can open up that. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation So if you want to follow along or check out the screen, that'll be up to you. But we're going to get 1 Peter 2, saying verse 9. Now what's been fun, before I actually read that, um, we're in a series back home of 1 Peter. So when David asked me to share, um, this is a book that I've just been living in the last 8 or 10 weeks. Um, and there was so much here, and I thought, well, I'll just speak about the whole book. And David said, no, we, we only speak like 35 minutes here, Rick. Um, <laughs> that will never work, you know. So I, I, I kind of narrowed it down, although I'm going to kind of jump all the way through this because that's just how it is. And really, um, you should get out of here by noon or so, so we'll, we'll be okay. It's not funny. I'm just kidding. Just kidding for some of you. Let's read First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For He has called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. And they will give honor to God when He judges the world. Let's pray. Father, I just ask at this time that um, you would use your words. We pray, dear Father, in spite of not being a beat-up basketball team or living 2,000 years ago, that your word would be powerful and that your word would transform us from the inside out, that, that we would leave hopeful, that we would be encouraged because we can focus on you. God, give us grace. I I pray, Lord, that there's nothing that I say distract from what you want to teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. He starts off saying this, you are not like that. Well, if you haven't read through the book, if you didn't see the first or, or the verses that precedes this, you're going like, what is Peter talking about? Like what? Well, Peter uses an Old Testament prophecy and a metaphor that they would all know. He says, you are not like the ones who didn't recognize Jesus as a cornerstone. Now, we just got through singing about Jesus as a cornerstone. And some of you, again, may even understand that metaphor, but if there's any builders in here, you'll, you'll get it a little bit easier. At least back then, there was something called a cornerstone in every building, and it would be the stone that would be set first, and you would align your building according to that cornerstone. Everything would be plumb, or everything would be level according to that cornerstone. So that cornerstone was key. If you did not align your walls or your roof or your floor according to the cornerstone, your building would be crooked, dilapidated, it'd be really hard to build and really frustrating for most of you ladies. The truth is this, is that Peter says this, is that you are not like the ones who didn't recognize Jesus as the cornerstone. Jesus came and lived here for 33 years, but the last three years, he was the talk of the town. But not everybody responded, which is so odd. Then 30 years later, as this thing called the church just kind of gained momentum, Jesus was still being talked about. Lives were still being transformed. Things were still happening, but people didn't recognize who Jesus was. He said, You're not like the ones who didn't honor him, that didn't worship him. They didn't understand how important Jesus is. You're not like the ones who didn't trust in him. You just kind of thought he was a good teacher, or maybe he was a nice man. In fact, You are not like the ones who have tripped over him and rejected him. Not only were you casual about ignoring Jesus, but you went one step further and said, I don't want anything to do with it. And then Peter turns a corner and says, You trust Jesus, who is the cornerstone, and that has made all the difference in the world you align everything up according to Jesus. You recognize the importance of Jesus in your life. You recognize that he is king and you recognize that if everything is in line with who Jesus is and what he has taught, that your building is going to look pretty good. And then Peter says this, it's because of your faith, not like the ones that rejected. Let me remind you who you are, because you've honored Jesus, because you've seen him as the cornerstone, because you have faith in him, let me remind you who you are. Now remember, these people are entering an awfully difficult, hard time. Some of them in just a few years would be used, dipped in tar, and put in Nero's garden so he could light his garden. They were crucified and then burned at the stake on top of it just because you followed Jesus. In just a few years, Christians would, well, they would put animal skins on you and put you in a coliseum and have people watch you as other animals tore you apart because you were a God follower. So, so really what Peter is saying, because of your faith, because things are going to get really, really, really hard, i want to remind you who you are. He said, first of all, you're a chosen people. It's kind of ironic. In the very first chapter in verse 2, Peter starts off and says, you're a chosen people. He uses this all the way through his letter. He wants them to understand that God chose them to be part of his family. You know, this whole idea of chosen is pretty interesting if you read back in Deuteronomy when Moses talks about being chosen. He's reminding the children of Israel that they are a chosen group. But it's great because what Moses said is he goes, You know, I just want you to know God didn't choose you because you were the best, you were the tallest, you were the strongest, you were the smartest, you were the biggest. God chose you because he wanted to choose you. There's no reason he chose you other than that's what he wanted. So Peter knows that, and he's just reminding these believers, he goes, hey, because of God's mercy, God chose you. He said, you are priests, not just any priest. And again, for us, it's a little bit hard to understand. Most of the time, we don't interact with priests, or the church um, doesn't surround this whole priest idea. But back then, again, a priest was well-known, and a priest really was a person that represented God. It brought people. He, they were kind of the mediator, all right, between God and the people. It's kind of a neat picture. You Are a mediator. You you are a priest. You are one that helped people see God better. You're a royal priest, though. You're the king's priest. And he says that also in chapter 1, verse 5. You're going to find out I don't think Peter was a dumb fisherman, but I do think Peter wanted to make sure that everybody knew exactly what their standing was. So he kept repeating. And then he says, You're a holy nation. In chapter 1, verse 2, in chapter 1, verse 15, in chapter 1, verse 22, he called them holy. Now, that does actually scare some of us a little bit. Um, Being a holy nation doesn't mean you're a perfect nation. What that means is you're a clean, or you're sanctified, or you are able to serve on my behalf. He says, you are God's very own that Christ died to redeem you. You now have an identity. You're on God's team. You can wear the jersey. Very interesting. Sharon and I went, I think it was Scottsdale, on Wednesday night. We got here on Tuesday. And we went to Scottsdale to go to a restaurant. And because, again, I'm not from the area or whatever, I get to Scottsdale and... And all these stores are open, and all these folks are, are walking around, but just about every store had a San Francisco giant uniform in it. I'm going like, seriously? Like, I'm in giant territory, you know? But then I started seeing people were walking around with all these kind of baseball jerseys all over. So I knew exactly where everybody stood. I think realistically, this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, you have a special identity. You are on God's team. You can wear the God jersey. Now, realistically, he was writing to a group of people that were probably not, the majority of them were probably not Jews. They were Gentiles. This was actually really kind of cool. So when Peter was writing this letter to this group of of folks, of believers in Asia Minor, most of them were Gentiles, and they had not had the privilege of all the Jews in the history and the understanding of who God is. It's kind of saying you came late to the game. You can put on, like, is everybody like a Cubs fan right now? You know? I mean, for 108 years, no one watched the Cubs. But now it's really cool. It's saying, you know what? You can put the Cubs jersey on now. By the way, I'm not a Cubs fan. I'm a White Sox fan. So it's very hard to be that excited about the Cubs. But I think the illustration works here is that realistically, people are really proud to put that Cubs jersey jersey on and probably going to be really proud for like the next 20 years to wear the Cubs jersey. And, and that's really what Peter's saying. He's saying, you didn't have an identity, you do. But now you have received God's mercy. It's offered the all, but you people took advantage of it. So I want you to know that you are a very special group. You know, I wonder if some of us forget how merciful God is. I wonder how many of you are in awe when you drive up to this church and you look through the courtyard and there are mountains up there with blue skies. Rick, are you kidding? That's how it is all the time here. Don't even tell me that. Like I think the mountains should be there like all the time. But the sun, and the beauty, and the green, and the yellow flowers everywhere. Now again, I'm new. Everything I see is amazing. But I wonder if sometimes we forgot how amazing God's mercy is. Well, hey, I heard about that when I was five years old. I heard how Jesus died. Man, I get that. But do you get? How much God loves you, how gracious He is, how much He has changed your life, how much that whoa, this is so amazing. He's given you the opportunity to live abundantly now and spend eternity with Him. Do you understand God's mercy? And this is what Peter's saying. You've now received God's mercy. It's it's offered to everyone, but you received it and you get to embrace it as a result. And this is where we all started. Because of all this, because of who you are, because of God's great grace and mercy, it's been dumped on you. You can show others the goodness of God. He has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are literally able to see God clearly so you can walk differently. You see, so many people in our neighborhoods that we hang out with, don't have a good image of who God is. And that's literally because they have never seen God. They don't understand God. They don't know His grace and His mercy and His love and how much He cares. You know, um, I love scuba diving. I I do. I love snorkeling because it's cheaper, but, but I love scuba diving. And any place, if if I could go, other than now Phoenix is my now new favorite place to come and visit, but if I could go anywhere for vacation, I would go anywhere where there's water and where there's coral, and, and I could every day just literally go diving. Now, about 15 years ago, I had this procedure called LASIK surgery. And my wife worked for a school district, and her insurance was, like, unbelievable. So I ended up uh, getting this LASIK surgery where they fix one eye so I can see distance, and one eye that I can see close. And, you know, this procedure that cost thousands and thousands of dollars cost me $15. It was kind of cool. So I, after the procedure, I had not gone diving for a while. And I, really, the only thing I ever saw diving was Lots of blurry colors because, again, it was kind of cheap, and I didn't get the mask with the, uh, you know, corrective lenses in it. So the first time that I dove in after the LASIK surgery, I, like, lost it. I did. I had no idea what God did under that water. And I'm looking at the fish, and I'm like, whoa, and the coral, and the colors, and like, I think I stopped breathing, you know? And I said, this has always been here? And Sharon looked at me and says, you're such a dork, (laughs) you know? Of course it's always been here. Well, it was the first time that I saw it. And I honestly think that that is... Sometimes our problem is that we don't spend time with God so we don't see God very well, or our lives are so busy, or we demean and and look down on other people that don't honor God very well, and realistically, they need spiritual LASIK surgery. They need to be able to see how big and wonderful and gracious and unbelievable our God is and and I think what happens is that Peter is literally saying this he's saying you didn't see well you were in the dark but once you came to faith you enter this light you're able to see God differently you are a new creation That really is Greek for you got LASIK surgery, all right? So as a result, you were able to see God in a new and a fresh way. You see, you spend time with God and your perception changes. In fact, everything changes. You see Him differently, you understand Him differently. So he says this, so be careful to walk properly among your not yet redeemed neighbors. And so I look at that text and I say, what does walking properly look like? Well, I think if you look at the whole letter, I think keeping faith in the midst of trials is walking properly. Back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it's a passage that so many of you are familiar with, but Peter reminds them that, hey, when you go through extremely hard times, I want you to know that these trials are going to purify you. They're going to help you see God differently. You're going to experience God in a new and a fresh way every single morning. His grace is going to be so abundantly clear to you as you go through rough times. And I don't know what those rough times are for you. But I look at my life, and I know some of my rough times were because I was an idiot. I I know that some of my rough times were because other people were idiots. And I know that some of my rough times I don't have a clue right now why they happened. I don't. But I know this, is that because I was able to go to my God and because I could trust my God and put my faith in my God, it did not matter what those circumstances were. You know, there isn't any doubt that your unredeemed neighbors, if you're suffering through cancer and you continually trust God, they see that. Or if you experience a death of a loved one or some other horrific thing happens, people are watching. Nobody wants a fake person. Nobody wants some giddy, goofy person. But a person that, in spite of this suffering and hurting and discouragement, said, I'm going to trust my dad. My dad knows what's best. My dad's in control. My dad's going to take care of this. I think another way that we walk properly is by loving others deeply. In chapter 1, verse 22, Peter over and over and over again says, love others deeply, care for them, treat them the way that you want to be treated. Or specifically, just a little bit later in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, I'd like to read that. Again, this is just about where we are back home, so I won't go any further than this. All right. But this is what Peter writes. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. What Peter is saying is that I think walking properly means that you're unified, that you are sympathetic, that you are tenderhearted, that you are humble, and that you trust God for justice, oh, mercy, that you trust God uh, for justice, all while blessing your enemies, and if you as individuals are walking in this way than corporately at Gold Canyon Community Church. This is a community that's unified, that's sympathetic, that's tender-hearted, that's humble, and trust God for justice, all while blessing your enemies. In fact, Jesus modeled for this a little bit later in chapter 2, starting at verse 22, Peter writes this, Jesus never sinned, nor did he deceive anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Now, I don't know if you mark your Bibles, but if you do, this one would be a yellow exclamation mark and circle it. That God is the one who will always judge fairly. You know, Jesus trusted His dad in circumstances and with people and modeled for us how to do it. When, and the season's coming, He was spat upon. When He was scourged. When he literally was crucified, when he didn't even look like a human being, the words that come out are, Father, would you forgive them? They they don't know what they're doing. Are you serious? That's probably what every one of us would say, you know? We get upset if someone cuts in line before us. Hey, this isn't right. Why doesn't this happen? God, why don't you bring down justice? Send your thunderbolts. That car really needs to be zapped, God. (laughs) And we look at that. And Peter's saying this. He's saying, my God is so in charge. I can love people even when I'm not loved. When people say poor things about me or mistreat me, I can bless them because my God is going to be the judge, and my God is going to take care of that. Well, wait, 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 my rights. You know, I mean, parents, oh, my word. You know, parents, oftentimes if kids don't get treated well in the third grade, oh, my, you know, you're on the phone. Do you realize that this teacher said this about... And, and then it continues to eighth grade. And, and then when your kid does not get to start on the football team as a senior, when this is really important, I'll tell you that, coach, I'll give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to tell every parent around, that guy should be fired. You know, it's really good when you are the starting quarterback. You know, It is. But sometimes you're not. But you can leave justice in the hands of God. Whoa. Do you think your neighbors are going to see that differently? Do you think that people are going to notice? When you treat others with dignity in spite of how you're treated, how do we do this? It's actually not tricky, but it's because we walk with God we spend time with God. He wears off on us. In Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, so all of us who have had that veil removed, or all of us who've come to faith, we begin to reflect the glory of God, or we mirror God's glory, or we mirror to others what God looks like. Whoa. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. As we spend time with God, God chips away all the anger, all the garbage in our life. And we begin looking a whole lot more like Jesus because of the time we spent with Him. We can try to be sympathetic, and it doesn't work. We can try and try our best. But it's spending time with Jesus who chips away what He needs to chip away. They are watching. You and I have been saved from an empty life we inherited from our ancestors. That's how Peter puts it in verse 18 of chapter 1. I think it's important for every one of us who have been redeemed for us to remember how gracious God is and for us to be able to share our ransom story, to be able to tell how you've been redeemed and point Jesus to the King. You know, I think the greatest gift you can give a person is to introduce them to Jesus. Some of us choke up. Some of us think, "Ah, I can't, whoa, Jesus, like, whoa. The only time I hear the word Jesus, it's not that a good time, you know. Um, But for me to bring up Jesus... You know, if people respond to the good news or the gospel, they're changed internally now and changed externally later. It's the greatest thing that can happen. Bill Hybels, he comes from that small church in Chicago. Some of you have heard of that. He says this. He says, every person I know would be better off if Christ were at the center. If you believe that, then it's actually easy to be able to share who Jesus is and what He's done for you. No matter who you know, they would be better off having Jesus as their Lord. And then they, according to Peter, will give honor to God at judgment because they know Him. They will bow down because of your faithfulness, because they've noticed, because you've walked with God and you've shared. And then he leaves us one last warning. He says, because you are temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your souls. Peter doesn't write this as a perfect sermon. He's writing it as a letter, and he's just pouring out his heart. And, and every once in a while, he gets his thought, and one thought is this. He goes, hey, I just want to remind you, you're foreigners, you're temporary residents, but one thing that's going to... This is a pretty powerful message. Um, one thing that I want to warn you about is that life is short. And that your real enemy is your flesh. It's, it's the stuff that God is refining. It's the stuff that, that continually comes up and wars against your soul. So, if you understand who you are, your mission is clear. It's to show God's goodness to others. It's to walk around wherever you go to Costco or to a Cubs spring training game and that you mirror who Jesus is. You treat people differently in the checkout line. You treat people differently as you drive. You treat people differently in your household. You honor your spouse differently. People will see that. And you show God's goodness to everyone. You know, we have such an amazing Father, a good, good Father. Let's point others to Him. Would you stand with me as we close in worship? Father, I thank You again, just as You encouraged the people 2,000 years ago with Peter's letter. I pray, God, that you would help us understand because of your grace and mercy who we are and that we have an opportunity to walk carefully and to mirror to others who you are. Father, we know you're a good, good God. We know that that you are a gracious God. So we pray at this time, God, that you would give us courage to mirror you well. In your name, amen.